Hello beautiful awakened souls. I am so excited for today's episode because I have a very special amazing guest that's going to be on the show and actually this was recorded a few weeks ago and today I'm just recording the intro but it's taken a little bit of time for me to finalize this episode and now I am finally ready to release it and I'm so so excited for that. Um, even though um, this episode was not recorded in my home with my usual tools and how I normally do it so the audio isn't perfect and the editing isn't perfect. There's a couple of little things in there that the perfectionist in me doesn't like just to be fully honest with you but I wasn't going to let that prevent me from from publishing this episode because it is such an amazing conversation that I have with this amazing guest and I'm sure that many people will will get a lot out of this episode so with that being said let me introduce the guest of today's episode. His name is Karsten Östergaard Peterson, and Karsten was born in Denmark and after spending extensive periods in London and the Middle East, he finally settled in his now home Australia. He has done extensive studies in the areas of psychology, mindfulness, hypnotherapy and counselling just to name a few. Boasting a lifelong interest in consciousness, behaviour and how we experience life led Karsten to work with people suffering various difficulties in life, helping them to turn things around and create a positive and enjoyable experience for the individual. Karsten has been able to help a variety of people overcome issues such as depression, addiction, trauma and anxiety or guide people through relationships, business developments, life goals and conflict resolution. He has written books on depression, relationships and positive aging as well as created online courses on depression, meditation, goal setting and more. Karsten also offers seminars on various different topics as well as one-on-one client sessions. So in this episode, Karsten and I talk about his journey from traumas, anxiety and low self-esteem to joy. We talk about how to create a blueprint to your journey to joy how challenges and difficulties set us up for success in life. We also talk about local and non-local consciousness and the life-changing concept of perceptionality. We also talk about Karsten's cancer journey and how he remained positive throughout it. We talk about how to experience pain without suffering and also causes of depression and 55 different ways to treat it apart from antidepressants 
that have no side effects and are easily accessible in our daily lives. So this is just some of the things that we talk about, but there is so, so, so much more um, that we cover in this episode. It's such a beautiful conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening. Hi, beautiful awakened souls. My name is Annie and I am a manifestation and mindset coach. It is my purpose and mission to inspire you to be the best version of yourself and help you manifest a life full of love, freedom and abundance with ease. In this podcast, I share my wisdom about mindset, manifestation, spirituality and personal development. Awakened Souls podcast is for you if you are committed to your growth and desire to create the life of your dreams. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this serves you. Hello, beautiful awakened souls. I am so excited to be recording this podcast today because I have a very special guest with me today. Carsten, welcome to the show. Thank you very much and thank you for the invitation. It's lovely to be here. Amazing. Now, before we get started, um, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself to all the listeners, just who you are and um, what you do. Who I am is a very big question. I'm Carsten Östergaard Petersen. I have had a lifelong curiosity about consciousness and how consciousness plays into how we experience life. Over my years of existence, I was born in Denmark. I lived in the Middle East for a while. I lived in London for a while and lived in Australia. And I've had the privilege of traveling extensively. What that does to one is obviously the privilege of understanding and getting insight into different cultures, different religions, different living paradigms. And that has certainly formed a big basis of how I see consciousness. I've also used other access points of getting into consciousness, whether that's spirituality, whether it's things like ayahuasca, psilocybin, whether it's clinical psychology, whether it's philosophy in general. So basically every single angle that can shed some light on a different corner of what consciousness is and for that reason also how we live our life and how we experience our lives. And I suppose coming out of that is a concept that form a big part of my hypothesis called perceptionality. I think most people live 80% of their lives in perceptionality, which is not their reality as such. It's their reality because it's their perception of reality. And that's a heavy influence of how we experience life and what joy we get out of life. Mm. And when we talk about joy uh, and my curiosity of consciousness, my big question was, can you plan a journey to joy? And my answer was, yes, you can. And I'm setting up a podcast at the moment that will be JJ's Journey to Joy. 
because I'd like to think I'd be able to give people some tools to easier access their journey to joy. And I suppose when we start unfolding that, it's a little bit like a bambuska doll because every single time you open one, there's another one and there's another one and there's another one. And I think that's probably one of the things that really fascinates me because there's more you study consciousness, there's more stupid you are, there's less you know. So that creates a curiosity and an excitement and a motivation in itself. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. And yeah, I feel like every time I talk to you, we have such interesting conversations and you just have so much knowledge and wisdom, which is why I wanted to have you on my podcast. And the topic I really did want to talk about today, which is something you already mentioned, is joy. And like you said, that's the name of your podcast, which will be launching soon. And also, I just feel like you are a person who is just so full of joy. You're just so positive. You always see the good in every situation. And you always manage to stay calm and grounded internally, no matter what is going on around you externally. And that's such an amazing skill that I think a lot of people struggle with. And so I would love to know, have you always been like that? Like, what were you like when you were younger? What was your upbringing like? And if you haven't always been like that, what has been your journey to joy like? Oh, have I always been like that? Absolutely mm. not. Quite the opposite. Mm. I, as a child, I was very anxious. I was very had very low self-esteem. I didn't believe very much in myself. I had a lot of traumas. And I think I had the perfect breeding ground for growth. I always tell the little story about the butterfly that a little boy comes running along the river and he sees a little cocoon. And halfway out of it is this butterfly trying to get out and it's struggling, it's really, really struggling, and you can see it's sweat and tears, it can't get out of its cocoon. So he feels very compassionate and very gently pick it up and take the cocoon and gently, gently rip it open and systematically rip the entire cocoon off the butterfly so it doesn't have to go through the pain and he takes a butterfly with its little shriveled wings and put it very gently down on the leaf and feel very good about himself because he has helped this butterfly come into existence, the whole concept of metamorphosis. Mm -hmm. And the next day he's out running, he runs up to the little leaf where he put it and he's still sitting there and it's looking quite weak and its wings are still shriveled. And he goes, oh, that's very unusual. So he poke it a little and it moves around and leaves it alone. And uh, third day he comes around, it's still sitting there and it's looking very, very weak. So he very gently pick it up and take it down to a friend of his who's a botanist and say, what can we do? And he looks at it and he goes, what did you do? And he said, I really, really tried to help it because it was in a lot of pain and it was really, really struggling to get out of its cocoon. So I saved it. 
And he said, no, you have actually killed it. Mm. And he goes, but I helped it out of its cocoon. And he said, well, the thing that modifies is that the struggle they go through to try to get out of the cocoon is so intense that the block get forced into all the little block vessels that in its wings and the wings develop. And without that intense fight, the wings cannot develop. And I think that the metaphor in that is having worked with thousands of people through the years, people who tend to develop the quickest and to the most beneficial degree are usually people who have really struggled. Mm. I, I have met some incredible people through time who have used their struggle to something. One of the examples, I did a talk at the National, sorry, Global Suicide Prevention Convention, an area I'm very interested in. And I met this beautiful human being from, I can't remember where in America, and she had a daughter she was very, very close to, her only daughter, her only child. And I'm not sure what had happened to her husband, but she had lost her husband as well. And her one and everything in life one day committed suicide. And her existence finished. She could not get over the fact her closest friend, her only daughter, had committed suicide. She felt failure, she felt guilt, she felt grief, she felt so many things she couldn't deal with. And she did a lot of writing. And she suddenly realized that the writing gave her a lot of relief. And one day she, said, she heard a story from Rwanda, the genocide survivors in Rwanda and their mm -hmm. traumas they were dealing with and how they couldn't get over it. And she said, you know, I need to do something. I need to pass on what I have learned. So she moved to Rwanda where she lived for many, many years and taught all the women her writing techniques to get out of trauma. And the results she got was fantastic. And sitting talking to her was so inspiring because she had turned her darkest hour into her lightest hour and she had really developed into something she would never have developed to otherwise. Mm. So I think what I've gone through myself and when I work with other people, I always look at how can you use what you have experienced in way of hardship to become the little butterfly and, and really develop something you wouldn't have developed otherwise. And I suppose when we go into psychology, the, the concept of external locus of control versus internal locus of control, in, in, in simple term, are you a victim? Do you blame everyone else? My parents gave me a terrible childhood. My schoolmate bullied me. My whatever. It's always someone else's fault. They made me do it is always going to end up in something that looks like anxiety, depression, and a person shutting down and not doing anything with their life. Where internal locus of control is the sort of sentiment of, I'm in control of my life, and no matter what, I'm in charge. 
if people are nasty to me, it's because I allow them to be, I don't put boundaries. So I need to put boundaries. If I'm not getting the job I want, I need to try a different approach or I need to educate myself. People who have that approach tend to have a zest for life, be motivated, and a lot of times really get to places that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. We in particular see a lot of billionaires that have come from humble beginnings. Mm. I mean, here in Australia, a gentleman who I have a lot of respect for, Kerry Stokes, who is dyslexic, can't read and write. He was also an, an orphan. And his decision to experience a life that was different has ended him up being a millionaire now, a billionaire, I beg your pardon. Mm. Uh, another one who was a billionaire as well was a gentleman of the name of Stan Parent, mm. an incredible soul uh, from, for many reasons. He came out as an immigrant. He left school at 14 because book work was just not him. He had an incredible curious mind and started selling tissue boxes, decorating tissue boxes. And slowly that developed into him becoming a billionaire and having the license for Toyota, earning a big part of the real estate portfolio in, in Perth CBD and many other things. And I think one of the things that was unique about him was he really used his hardship for something fantastic and he also became a huge philanthropist. Someone who is, even after his death now, is giving away a lot of money. Mm. And uh, what also was, was very unique about him, if you had business dealing with him, you never needed to put it on paper because he was one of the most trustworthy people I have ever encountered. Mm. And whenever he would give away to charities and stuff, he would never ever do any press releases. He would always keep it totally quiet. So I think we need to be very careful of how we, our perception, our perceptionality mm. of hardship could actually be a gift mm. or a silver lining. And I think it's our choice how we are going to use that. Mm. And it's certainly something I use a lot in my work, working with people. I work with asylum seekers, I work with prisoners, I do business consulting, I've written a book on depression, I've also written a book on marriage and relationship because it's very much about how we experience life as well. I wrote a book on positive ageing because all those experiences of life is really something that impact how we experience life. Mm. And I think what's important to Remember is you may have one experience now, but it's not your identity. It may come from nurture or nature. It may also come from, uh, that takes us into a whole different part of my research because it's my very strong belief that we have something that is local consciousness, but we also have something that's non-local consciousness. Local consciousness is something we deal a lot with in psychology, deal with in general. Non-local consciousness is something we are a little afraid of dealing with and it's a little bit 
embarrassing to talk about because it's it's can't be put into a framework so let me explain it a little better local consciousness is what goes on in our head so we may think certain times certain things and when we think certain things they come into in our existence and the way we experience life we might choose to do certain things we might read a book to get knowledge all of that is local consciousness i think a lot of times depression and anxiety come from local consciousness because it cannot exist in non-local consciousness so there's a huge opportunity in understanding that to actually get rid of our mental experiences i don't personally like the concept of mental illness because i think it's more mental experience mm. and i think they can be influenced in different ways it's a well-known fact that whether it's depression anxiety they're fully treatable and there's a lot of disagreement how it can be treated there's a, a, a lot of researchers who's indicating antidepressants don't work on a biological level but when it comes to a level of placebo they work fantastically mm. there is some people who suggest that there is some effect and there's other people who suggest that they work perfectly well but i think we need to be sensible when we look at those things because one thing that everyone agree on is that antidepressant comes with a lot of side effects mm -hmm. everyone agrees about that whether they work or don't work and why they work no one agrees about mm. so having spent a year studying depression there's 55 evidence-based treatments for depression of which antidepressants is only one wow and some of the treatments do not have any side effects whatsoever mm. and antidepressants is the one that got most side effects mm. personally i think antidepressants even there's evidence they don't work can be useful because it can be useful for a human being to be given something saying here is something that's going to make a change to how you feel and that can help them snap out of that experience mm. when i say snap out do not misunderstand that in the way that i think it's something people put on because it's certainly something that has a biological reason as well one of the big questions is when we talk about a biological reason it's a little bit like the chicken of the egg because we know our thinking changes our chemical production and we also know our chemical production mm. changes our thinking so the question is what comes first mm. i think it's more a question of how can we use that knowledge of a bi-directional influence to create our own healing mm. and and i really do think put into a, a proper understanding we can do that mm. now before i get too deep into the local consciousness let's talk a little bit about non-local consciousness because that's a really controversial one it's i suppose it's the area i saw someone 
explaining a simple similar con concept and he put it like the TV receiver the picture does not come from internally of the TV it comes from the externally I think there's a part of consciousness that is external and I think in life it's one of the things we have not understood because personally what I have experienced the understanding I have come to is that non-local consciousness is actually something we can access for our benefit but it can also do some undesirable things if we get the wrong side of that mm. it's something I prefer to call nature because there's certain things that that absolute truth in life if you put a seed in a ground and you give it water and sun you are almost guaranteed to get if it's a flower a beautiful flower it doesn't need a psychologist it does not need an engineer to come into existence and I think there's certain sin in our experience of being a human being that if we get ourselves into a natural state we are guaranteed to live healthily mm. so as a result I don't think you go and find happiness I think you always carry happiness with you mm. I think it's a matter of getting our natural balance into something that's completely balanced and get rid of all the stuff that's covering up happiness so I really think the journey to happiness is balance mm. there's a lot of things that influence that balance because it got something to do with nutrition it got something to do with fitness it got to do with a lot of different things and, and I recall once I had a very very deep meditation in one of my little growth spurts I was suddenly standing in front of two lions and where I was in my sensory world at the time I felt so fantastic it was an incredible sense of deep deep peace and a contentment a joy uh, a sense of well-being that I didn't dare to move to destroy it because it was so beautiful and suddenly there was a feeling of well you can stay in this experience but there's things you have to bear in mind you can't have many people around you because a lot of people's energy will destroy and make this experience fall over you cannot listen to radio tv any external noise mm -hmm. you have to isolate yourself a lot from the world you have to live really really healthy you have to have a high level of nutritional food and one of the things that really, really surprised me was you can't be passionate about anything. Mm. And I would call my mind fighting that and saying, what passion is a good thing. Mm. But there was a clear understanding that passion would actually make my incredible sense of peace fall over. Mm. It took me a long time and I understand it now because I can see exactly what happens. It, it's, it, 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 you can use passion for something that's equally enjoyable but it's not that extreme sense of peace and calmness as I'm getting all these little beautiful epiphanies I'm traveling down my timeline and at one stage I crossed over my time of death 
And I would call in that experience turning around, looking back at my life. And you would think there would be, wow, I traveled to that beautiful sense of peace for an entire lifetime. But there was a deep sense of disappointment because I look back and I said, yes, it has been a really beautiful journey, but I haven't done anything. I haven't experienced anything. I haven't grown. I just had this almost hedonic experience where deep peace and tranquility were ubiquitous, but there was a disappointment associated with that because there was just a feeling of, that's not what I want to do with my life. Mm. The minute I had that thought, it was like, woof, and I was sucked back to the beginning. And then I turned around and I went out to the line that was very different to the first one. And as I traveled down, I was doing what I was doing now. I would be working with people, taking on their energy, sometimes having to do some self-care, in particularly when I work with children, it affects me heavily mm. because you really, uh, I suppose I have a, a softness for children and, and old people because mm. they're very vulnerable and I think that they deserve to be in a place where they have a lot of certainty and love. And I think sometimes when you work with people who is not in that position, you can't help but taking some of that on and uh, in the beginning, I always looked at putting professional boundaries up, mm -hmm. but very quickly realized that that didn't work for me because I think one of the things that works best is when you actually connect with people. When you connect with people, you also take a certain part of their energy on because you go into their experience. So what I looked at instead was What's the journey to your personal joy? How, do you, how can you actually get back to your balance again? Mm -hmm. And again, I think that's where non-local consciousness comes into it. Mm -hmm. One of the ways of accessing that is meditation. Because you get to a point where you meditate, you might, if you've had a really, really rough day with working with a lot of traumas and different things, it might take me 15 to 20 minutes and suddenly you break through that. And it's almost like you raise above it and can look down and you go to yourself, oh my goodness, how did I get myself into that experience? One of the things you notice when you work with people all the time is patterns. And something that's a little more unusual or controversial is the fact that when people come in with big experiences or traumas, I have noticed unusual happenings around them. So you can translate that into there's something that comes with them. There's something around them. You can translate it into a lot of different things. And I think it just depends on who you are, how you translate that. So there has been everything from electrical things going strange fire alarms going off, there has been things popping over on landing in water glasses, there has been plants suddenly starting waving like there's, there's wind around them. 
What I translate that to is going back to nature. Some people will translate it into universal energy. Some people will translate it into religion, God. Some people will translate it into something, but I like to call it external consciousness. Mm -hmm. I also find that some of those happenings seems to be very benevolent. It, it really, it's almost like something is assisting the person. But there's also another part that seems malevolent. So not very nice. And working a lot with drug addiction, I see a lot of people, what they're reporting fits into the malevolent side, something that scares them. But the interesting thing, they always tend to report the same thing. The benevolent side seems to experience the same thing as well. A lot of people translate it into God, hence when they go through hard times, they often become very believing or trusting or religious, even they haven't been before. What I think we are missing and what I think that we don't understand about non-local consciousness is that my experience is that the person get the external, external help that fits to what they're going through. So you can't help but think that all the different religions is talking about the same thing, but maybe the people who originally experienced it were experiencing it in a certain way because it fitted to what they needed at the time. And they're just generalize that and assume that that's how that works. Mm. So if we possibly could put everything out of the realm of religion and put it into nature, I don't think there would be so many wars and so many people who's trying to convince others that their way of seeing what, 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 what they call God is correct in the way they see it but more case of the same thing that's experienced differently according to what they need. Mm. I, if putting all the experiences together when we talk about non-local consciousness, I, in the beginning I thought it was a little far-fetched, but there's more examples and things I saw that indicated there was something there. The more I saw there was both good and bad, I one day, bumped into a little quote by Rumi that kind of really put everything in place. And his quote was, do not take my demons because you will take my angels true. Mm. And I think that when you access that realm of what I call nature, you can't open one without the other. Mm. So there's, there's different whether you call it dark and light, whether you call it malevolent or benevolent, whatever you call it, there's both experiences in the one. And in the journey to joy, it comes with a certain local consciousness to get a certain non-local conscious experience, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so many thoughts that were going through my mind, but yeah, I totally agree. And something I really like to say to a lot of people, my clients and, and people I talk to is that 
you can only go as high as you go low. So yeah, you absolutely need both the lows and the highs. You can't just have one or the other. And it does come back to how you choose to see it. Um, and something else I always say is that life is always happening for you, not to you. And any situation that you go through, if you choose to see it that way, you, that's how you get the lessons from it. That's how you grow through these difficult times. And that's um, how you really create your own reality. Um, and something else that I, that I wanted to talk to you about is last year you were going through your cancer journey and I was you know witnessing that from the side and seeing how throughout that journey you still remain to stay so positive and so calm um, and like trusting the process and even with something so difficult like cancer you were still seeing how it was happening for you so I'd love to just hear a little bit more about your experience and what the lessons were from that and and how did you how were you able to stay so so calm and so positive about it that's a good question and i think one of the things that have fascinated me what i work with every time every single time i work with a particular area i seem to get the experience myself mm. And at the time I was working with a number of people who were going through cancer and supporting them in their journey and uh, completely coincidental, I had some stomach issues I have over the past two, three years and I've been back and forward to doctors and they've been doing tests and couldn't find, find anything. And um, suddenly one week I had a lot of intense burning so I sort of may have an infection so I went to the doctors and they said well listen this is what I've been experiencing the last two three years the the doctor in question was very mature and intelligent in her way of dealing with it because she said well there's obviously something going on so let's have a look what they have done in way of test and let's look at what they haven't done and although the symptoms was nothing to do with the lungs he said have you ever smoked and i said yes i did but that's many many years ago now and she said have you ever done an ex-smoker lung scan and i said no i haven't and she said let's do one of those and we did and um uh, when i two days after we're called up to come in for an appointment with my doctor, even my appointment was weeks ahead, I realized there was something going on. The last thing I expected was to be told I had lung cancer. Mm. And it was interesting and almost, I mean, I wouldn't be without the experience because the first reaction was, wow, I've had a good life. I have had a beautiful mixture of hardship, good times, sad times, fun times. And it was a little bit like watching a movie, just I lived in different countries. I, and I felt a sense of privilege. And uh, there, was, there was no sadness. Mm. And there was also a sense of, well, where am I now? What can I do? 
and what kind I do. And obviously some of the things I could do was to find out how far had it spread. And there's one thing in life I choose not to do very well, and that's being a patient person. <laughs> and I just want to know what I'm dealing with. And there was a waiting list of this had to go to the lung cancer team and they had to request all the different tests. And uh, the first thing was to confirm that it actually was lung cancer. And uh, the mere fact they had to stick something in through my back and into the lung without being anesthetized mm. was in my perceptionality, not something I look forward to. When I had the procedure done, I was laying there and I was amazed of them digging through my back, in through muscles, in through cells, and into the lung to get their little sample without me being in any pain or such. Wow. And um, anyway, that, that, that came back and confirmed that it was indeed lung cancer. So the next thing was obviously waiting for all the different scans to see how far it has spread. Uh, having had experiences of people who were diagnosed and, and dead three weeks after, I realized it was imperative for me to get my will in order. What did I want to do with my body? What did I want to do with my belongings? And that really gave some introspection as well. There was no fear. I didn't tell many people because I chose to experience it by myself. And when I was first told, it was just before long weekend, and, and uh, my GP went, well, I don't want you to panic. And I said, well, I'm not. And she said, well, this is what it looks like. And I said, well, and she said, yeah, it's quite complicated. And I said, no, it's not actually very complicated because you had a lip you die. And she said, I really recommend you do not stay alone. And I remember when I left, I just smiled and said, I won't. And I remember when I left, I said, no, I definitely need to stay alone because I need this time to just allow this to become real and, and also understand what the outcomes could be. Mm -hmm. And it was a very it was a, actually a beautiful long weekend because it was reminiscing about my life. And again, it, it, the only thing, there was no fear, it was just gratitude. Mm. And there was funny little things that mine came up with. Little things like, where you said, where did that come from? Little thoughts like, oh well, at least I won't be sitting pooping in the corner of a retirement home waiting for someone to come and change me. And there was a little little source like that coming into it. I mean, we're all gonna die. Mm. We're all born and we're all going to die. So why is that so fearful? Mm. I mean, talk about nature, what is nature? That is nature. And you sometimes create these big dramas. Don't fight reality. If you want to be on a journey to joy, you don't fight priority. Things is what it is. And I think one of the biggest flaws of mankind is attachment. We attach ourselves to belonging, we attach ourselves to people. 
And that's what gives us suffering when we experience pain. Pain and suffering is two very different things. Mm. Pain is something that's absolute truth. But suffering is something our mind creates. Mm. So moving fast forward, um, uh, the, the treatment was going to be that they were going to take my top left lobe and that's obviously a, a, a relatively invasive procedure. And I had psyched myself up to, you know what, this is going to be pain. I'm focused and I'm determined not to make it suffering. And it wasn't. I had been warned about what that recovery process was. The, the, the professionality of the medical system was fantastic. And uh, the first days I was very fortunate. I mean, I had ketamine at the press of a button, lit literally into an intravenous strip. I, if I made a sand, I was off at tremadols and all sorts of, I had, had blockers on the side and, and I had every single thing I could to manage that pain. And as a result, it was just a journey. I expected it was not going to be a pleasant journey. And as a result, I was not disappointed. <laughs> and and, and it, it, it really wasn't a bad experience. Uh, I couldn't help pushing the boundaries because I wanted to get up, I wanted to move, I wanted to, to uh, I suppose, get going again, get my system flowing. And from struggling to walk three meters to in three, four days, very naughtily sneaking four floors <laughs> up to get a coffee and, and a walk, even there was a lot of stuff, to getting to the point on the fifth or sixth day, I was discharged and the day I was discharged, I decided to cut all painkillers out because obviously working with addictions, I know what opioids and those things can do in way of addiction. So I said, I'm not, I'm not going to, to keep that journey, although it's a very beautiful floaty experience, but it's not sustainable. And I see that's a whole different chapter when it comes to drug use in general. Mm -hmm. And from the sixth day after the operation, I had no painkillers whatsoever. I think I, I went to two, three panadols over the next weeks. And uh, within a couple of days from that, I was up at walking 10 kilometers a day and I was capable of looking after myself. So again, talking placebo, I think a lot of times when, when we don't fight what is, you don't go into suffering. There may be pain, but there's ways you can actually deal with that pain. And, and I think the biggest way, the best painkiller in the world is your mind and attitude. Yeah. So, so I think that flows in. So, uh, what happened after that was kind of a, a little bit of, of what happened because there was, there was a few little hiccups where I, I, I started leaking and, and liquid was coming out of the lungs where the suction were and, and I ended up back in with the cervical surgery team. And I, I recall 
having a conversation with them two weeks after when, when all the liquids and that happens. And I said, what is happening with what you took out of me? Because they've told me they were going to do intense testing on it. Uh, and I said, have you got any results? And they said, no, we haven't uh, yet because they take up to three weeks to finalize. And the next day I had a meeting with my lung cancer team that's on a different hospital, Royal Perth, and, and, and the surgery was at a, at a place called Sir Charles Gardner. And both places very, very professional. And the next day when I walked into the meeting, I had totally expected that I was told they couldn't tell me anything. And, and then I sit down and she looks in the paperwork and she said, well, we finished with you, get out of here and live your life. <laughs> And it was kind of the system when, what do you mean? She said, we finished with you. There's, we're confident that we got everything. Wow. So get out and live your life. And we'll see you in a year for a low radiation scan. And my brain was kind of going, whoa, hang on. I am in the mode of preparing that maybe I'm going to die. Now, I've actually been given an extended lease for life. Mm. And, and I remember walking out in the days and going, what, what has just happened? Mm. This whole chapter of experience. And I remember when I was sitting, when I got home, I said, okay, what are you going to use this for? You've been given an extension, having mm. heard of so many people who have, have died from lung cancer. It was kind of like unreal. And I said, well, what is more important than what happened is, what, what are you going to use it for? And I said, well, my passion in life is to create techniques, understandings, information that allows people to live better lives. And one of the things, in particular about non-local consciousness and all the external things happening, I kept that for myself because in general, people can't comprehend that. And if you tell it to a psychiatrist, it's very likely that they would suggest some nice, good antipsychotics for you. And how do you define those external happenings? How do you actually suggest that as a treatment module, paradigm, whatever you want to call it, we need to look into that external consciousness. Mm. How do you deal with what people who experience in that room, instead of telling them that they're experiencing a psychosis, is it possible that they're actually experiencing something that could benefit their healing? And I've carried that many years and I said, well, I'm going to publish that in a book or in seminars one day. But I also know that that is going to lead to ridicule. And although I said to myself, well, who cares if people ridicule it? And at least you put it out there so it can be worked with and tested. And I always delayed that. So when I was sitting saying, what am I going to use this extension for? Instantly the answer was, all that information in regards to external versus internal consciousness, internal versus external consciousness. 
Just get it out there. Don't worry about whether it's going to be ridiculed. Don't worry about whether people believe it or not. Just get it out there so people get a chance to deal with it. And I think that some of the things I see, I really do think that by building on that understanding, we can get a lot, lot further. And interestingly enough, we are getting some incredible results with psilocybin and uh, treatment of treatment resistant depression, PTSD traumas. And I really do believe it's because that we disconnect from our local consciousness and open up our non-local consciousness when we are having the psilocybin experience. And, and it's absolutely delightful to see that in Australia it has now been made legal mm. because I think we need to differentiate drug use from things like psilocybin and ayahuasca. I also think it's really, really important that it is used in a responsible manner and in a controlled manner yeah. because if it's used wrong, then some of them can really cause some harm. And I was think that when it's guided, and when it's guided by professionals, the outcomes are likely to be a lot more powerful. Mm. So it's, it's um, my own journey bit. Ayahuasca was profound. The insights I had, the insight to my own local perceptionality, what I had written of my perception of reality was remarkably different from when I was capable of accessing the non-local, but it, the access to, of the non-local consciousness gave me so much clarity of not only what I had created in the perceptionality, but also why. And the privilege of having that experience was that not only my own experience and how I managed to disconnect from those negative past experiences and having a life now where I almost feel guilty because uh, I feel such an incredible sense of contentment. Whether you go through lung cancer, whether you go through positive or negatives, there seems to be a beautiful constant experience of peace and tranquility there seems to be a beautiful thing that when people judge you or people put you into a certain box that you kind of just feel a sense of observation i mean you always double check and and make sure you haven't done something to harm them and make sure that it's just something that comes from their perception and if it's just from their perception you can go well I'm sorry you feel like that. I'm sorry they feel like that. If it's something you have done wrong, it gives you an opportunity to go in and change it. And we all make mistakes. We all have our odysseys. Every single person has odysseys. I often have clients coming in. I've recalled one person coming in and said, when I tell you my story, I guarantee you, you'll think you're the craziest person you have ever met and I also remember my response to him was I have never met a crazy person in my life ever because everyone has 
a story. Everyone have a perception of reality. I, I recall a gentleman coming in, working with a couple, and their uh, aggression towards each other was so big that you, uh, I could not see them together. And I suggested I see them separately. And when he came in, I said to him, so mate, what's the problem here? What do you think is the real problem? And he goes, she just doesn't get it, mate. Because it's a woman's job in a marriage to keep the peace. And she just doesn't get it. And the first thing that jumps up was, how has he created that perceptionality that is a woman's job to keep the peace in a marriage? So I didn't go in and argue against him. I said, okay, so let's, let's just go back to your nurture. It can be nature because it comes from different generations, but that's a different story. And it's a well-known fact. We can transfer our experience to different generations. And, and I'll tell you a little bit about the mouse project in a second. But in his case, I said, let's go back to your childhood. Look at your parents' marriage. And he literally got goosebumps and was shivering. And he went, oh, he said, I don't like remembering that time because my father was so violent, he said. And if my mother said the wrong thing or was at the wrong place and at the wrong time, she would get an absolute beating. And as said, I'm, I'm sorry, I can see that was very impactful for you. So I don't quite understand why you endorse violence. And he looked like he was going to hit me. He said, I certainly don't. And I said, so explain to me, if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is that your mother's way of putting up with that extreme violence was to always make sure she kept the peace by not saying the wrong thing, by not being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And in that moment, he, his whole body shuddered and suddenly he connected his belief that it's a woman's job to keep the peace to what happened in his childhood. And he could suddenly see that that was not actually the ultimate truth. Mm. It was a perceptionality he had created because that's how it was in his family. And as a result, we could start dismantling that belief and we would start building a new belief mm. that, you know what, it's probably not a wife's responsibility to keep the peace. Maybe that's mm. a couple's joint responsibility. So I think a lot of times we all have belief systems that don't work for us and we all have belief systems that, that do work for us. When it comes to cross-generational, and that can go into depression as well, a person can experience depression even if it got nothing to do with their lifetime it could be three four generations back mm. and i call used to call it the ancestral trail and i felt a little goofy calling it the ancestral trail because 
I like to put things into a place where there's an evidence base for it and there's some level of scientific proof. And, and ancestral trial sounds a little dum 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 dum. Then I found a piece of research on mice. They, the researchers created three groups of mice. There was mice that were single, there was mice that was pregnant, and there was mice with babies. They would give them a light electrical shock and let them smell cherry blossoms at the same time. After a while you create what uh, you call a classical reaction. So every time they smell the cherry blossom, then they will feel they're getting an electric shock. Mm -hmm. Their body will shiver like they're getting an electric shock and their chemicals will respond like they're getting an electric shock. When they had done that, they would separate the, the mice into the different groups. So when the pregnant ones gave birth, they would take the babies away straight away and bring them up separately. The single mice, they would get them pregnant and when they gave birth, they would separate them straight away and bring them up and breed them again. And after they break them several times, when the offsprings, several generations down smelled cherry blossom, they would start shaking like they were having an electric shock. So I think a lot of times when we help people rebalancing their experience, we need to bear in mind that maybe they've had generational transfer. So it's not just what one person experienced. It doesn't mean that someone who had depression three generations back, their offsprings three generations forward, will have depression, but it is likely to mean they'll have a predisposition for it. Mm -hmm. But again, what's important to bear in mind, that can be rebalanced. Mm -hmm. So the journey to joy sometimes is actually experiencing what happened back in time and how can you rebalance that. So personally, I don't ever look at a person and say, what's wrong with you? I always look at a person going I wonder what happened to you and you form a little teamwork where you go on an exploration to find out what has been brought out of balance in that person's consciousness and how can you bring it back into a balance and I think that when it comes to the journeys of joy there's some beautiful tools that can bring 80% of people back into a space of complete joy. There's 20% that is so specific that you need to use, really explore deeply to find some tools where they, they can be brought into a, a sense of balance. What I mean by that is that the 80%, the 80-20 rule, the 80% rule, some of the tools for the 80% is healthy nutrition, healthy mind food. So what are the people around you? What are the, the things you focus on in your life? What, what are you listening to? What are the attitude of people around you? What I'm hearing is that there is a lot that we can do for our mindset, for our well-being and for our joy. And earlier you were mentioning as well that there is 
think 55 different ways for um, treating depression apart from antidepressants so I'd love to just um, for you to share a little bit more about that because I feel like you know listening to your cancer story and things like that we can see how powerful our mindset is how much we do create our reality with our beliefs um, and how our attitude makes such a difference however for someone who is in the state of depression or in a state of anxiety and they just cannot tap into that they just cannot feel it they can't feel the joy or the gratitude they can't stay positive what advice would you have for people like that you know I think first and foremost I think it's important to understand that depression is something that is unfortunately quite a normal experience approximately 500 million people every single day experience depression and what's also important to understand is there is a way of treating it different treatments for different people so there is something called treatment as usual and that's usually what's happening when you go to your GP typically what will happen if you go to the GP you'll get a prescription for antidepressants if they do not work for you that does not mean your depression is not treatable it just means that that may not be the best way for you to treat it I think a lot of times there's two avenues of treatment where really there's 55 that I have found that has an evidence base the, the two normal ways of treating depression apart from antidepressants is psychotherapy and if you happen to fit into the category that those two don't work for you again it doesn't mean that you can't be treated it just means that those two may not work for you so if you look at the I was talking about 55 different ways of treating depression if you group them into different areas and there's many within each group it's pharmaceutical treatment it's psychotherapy it's a group of electric stimulation there's nutrition there's nature there's activities there's social there is energy psychology and there's other treatments which is things like psilocybin and, and things like that but I mean if we zoom into things like nutrition and nature and activities and social they're all things you can actually bring into your daily life without any interruption and it's also things that really are showing an impact without any side effects mm. so say for example there's two things under nutrition there's saffron that continuously has shown to be more effective than any antidepressant wow. or any antidepressants known there, there is um, things like D vitamins but it comes from the sun mm. there's also things like negative ions negative ions comes from water molecule, molecules classing but it also comes from plants 
So if you go for a walk along the beach and you come back and go, ah, oh, I feel so good and refreshed. Maybe it's because of you have actually just taken antidepressants. Mm. Not only have you gotten a good, nice, healthy dose of D vitamins from the sun, but you've also gotten a huge dose of negative ions from the classic water molecules. So I think a lot of times we have a mindset that unless it comes in a pill, it's not real. Mm. A little thing like something called, uh, when we talk about nature, bacterium varcae, which lives, is a bacteria that lives in soil, is continuously showing higher efficacy than antidepressants. So when people say, oh my gardening, I feel so good what I'm doing my gardening, and it's certainly, it's one of my little self-care things is, is gardening. I love to see things growing. I love to be in, in digging in the earth. And, and how that came about was, uh, I failed to remember her name, a doctor who works with cancer, healing of, of cancer. And she um, had suspicions that bacteria marque could actually help healing cancer. So she set up all the different groups of um, uh, in her research and applied bacteria barque to, I can't remember if they were inhaling or what. And it was pretty extensive research projects. And unfortunately, it showed that it had no healing impact. But everyone in the groups who got bacteria barque was so happy. And she went, hang on, is this a complete coincidence? I mean, usually when you pay a lot of attention to people, there's a, the famous Matt Hawthorne project where they changed the lighting and no matter if it was up or down, suddenly the productivity went up and that was because of their attention. But in this case, both groups were getting a lot of attention and the group with bacteria um, Barkey was so much happier. So she suddenly, said, well, it may not be healing cancer, but let me do some research on the happiness effect and where it came from. And it showed that people were happier when they had bacteria and barque. Again, there's no side effects. We all know exercise and endorphins. There's, there's things that has been uh, researched extensively when it comes to things like meditation and yoga. There is um, uh, there's a certain kind of, uh, well, I suppose, uh, a major one that everyone in, in this world, in my opinion, should have is fish oil. Mm. Because fish oil and mental health, there's some incredible benefits in a lot of different areas. So, again, we are, we are not only talking about how we can cure our depression, but we're also talking about the journey to joy mm. because we are talking about actually doing, living a lifestyle that is pertinent to a happy experience of life. Mm. So uh, I suppose the, the, the uh, wholesomeness and the healing part you find in my book on depression can be applied to general happiness as well. Mm. Then we can start talking about healthy relationships. Mm. Well, 
suddenly we are talking a lot about the same factors as well, but we are adding some factors because uh, we are talking about understanding uh, or having a, a narrative for giving us a self a personal, personal understanding of why we want to be in a relationship. What is a relationship for, in our opinion? And what does it look like? When we have a common storyline, I mean, in relationships, a lot of times we talk, one of the models I like is the love triangle that consists of intimacy, compatibility, and passion or infatuation, and, and, and understanding how those three components works. Having a purpose, whether you have a purpose in life, whether you have a purpose in a relationship, whether you have a purpose in your, your career is going to be a, a direct link to joy. Mm. I mean, the Japanese has this beautiful concept of ikigai, which on a very, very simplistic level is why do you get out of bed in the morning? Mm. Where on a lower level it talks about what does the world need? What are you passionate about? What do you love and what can you get paid for? So again, be back to that little concept of perceptionality. What is the perception of reality that gives us the highest sense of happiness? How do we go back to that natural balance we talked about earlier as well? Whether it's nature, whether it's nutrition, whether it's thinking, they all link in together. Mm. So. So how do we create those tools that actually gives us the journey that goes to joy rather than connected to a journey that goes to misery? Mm. And that goes a lot wider again, probably too wide to, to talk about here, but we are talking about the whole cognitive appraisal of how we translate the sensations we have from vision from what we hear, from what we taste, from what we smell, from what we feel. And when we combine that with what we think and what we put into our system in way of nutrition, suddenly you're starting to build a solid foundation for happiness. So back to where we started, can you create a blueprint, a journey to joy? Again, I really do believe that yes, you can. Because a journey to joy doesn't necessarily mean you don't have problems. I remember I, I was encountering someone who clearly had a very strong negative attitude towards me for some reason. And I obviously went back in my thoughts to make sure I hadn't done anything to hurt this person. And this went on for a long time. I used to encounter him whenever I went to, to yoga. And one day, I think there was a weekend, and he said, what, what are you doing for the weekend? And I said, oh, well, I'm doing this, I'm doing some gardening, I'm, I'm catching up with friends, da 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 And he goes, huh, I don't, I don't buy it. <laughs> and I said, what don't you buy? And he goes, you're always so sickly happy. I don't by the fact that you are so happy all the time. And I went, oh, okay, here we go. The poor guy is in pain and he's comparing himself 
and he's resentful that I'm happy. And I said, well, I am actually happy most of the time, but that doesn't mean that I don't have my problems and, and my pain. And he goes, really? And I said, no. And he said, well, how can you be happy if you're in pain sometimes? And I said, well, it all comes down to the expectations. Because life is not meant to be happy all the time. Life is not meant to be pain-free all the time. But if you're embracing the fact it's not meant to be happy all the time, then you can actually or, or be pain-free all the time. Then you can actually be content with the fact it is like that. So really, again, we are talking about the perceptionality and the direct link perceptionality have to happiness. You know, other things that comes into the journey of joy is if a person have a pain body, if a person have experienced continuous adversity, they get into a point where they actually have a comfort zone that's pain and suffering. And if that level of pain and suffering is falling, they tend to go out and do something or create a drama that gives them pain so their pain body can be fed. Mm. Because if a pain body, if an organism is not fed, it'll die. So suddenly you almost have some level of psychological dissonance because a part of you wants to be happy, but your behaviors are working against that. Mm. And it doesn't mean that the person has lost the plot it possibly means that we need to go in and find what that pain body is and what it looks like. And there's techniques there where we actually can retrain the mind in such a way that it's prepared to sacrifice that pain body. Mm. There's always sacrifices in life. When we embrace sacrifices, they're not suffering anymore. They're still sacrifices. I can't tell you how many people I get and saying, oh my goodness, I will dream of being single again. I want my freedom. I could do this and I could do that and I didn't have to consider that. And at the same time, I have a huge amount of people who are single who comes and go, oh, my life would be complete if I had a partner to wake up to in the morning. And imagine I had someone to go out for dinner with or sit and watch the sunset or walk hand in hand down the beach. Or the parents who went, Oh, what did we do? This is just hard work. We don't get a proper night's sleep. We don't get any personal time. But if we look at the sacrifices and embrace them before they're there, so if you sit down and said, it's time to have a child, we're gonna accept that the first two, three years, the night, a good night's sleep may be scarce. We're going to realize that all the personal time we get now, suddenly there's an individual who require our full attention and in particularly the first year, you can't take the eye off them. And there'll be lots of pooey nappies, there'll be a lot of work, but there's also so many, many, many beautiful things in it. And when we embrace that, then when it comes, it doesn't become suffering because we have calculated that into the bigger picture. Mm. 
a lot of men becomes depressed the first years after they get married because their their narrative is suddenly when they're married married is that they've lost their freedom they haven't lost mm. their freedom but suddenly their enjoyment becomes different to what they used to be and the dynamics becomes different to what used to be a comfort zone if in particular men was put through a pre-marriage course that made them see all the sacrifices and also all the gains they have and get them to embrace the sacrifice before they happened, then there wouldn't be that sense of discontentment. There will be a beautiful sense of contentment and they go, yeah, you know what, can't go out and float around on with all the mates as we used to every single week. But we have this beautiful human being in our life that we can do a whole range of other things. So now we are talking about journey of joy to joy being where is our focus. So tools, I think we have only touched on some of them, but I think we have sort of had a little taste of what they can look like and what you can start with. And if you are experiencing suffering, put your hand up, get some assistance. Mm. It's not a weakness. If something is out of balance, it can put, be put back in balance. If you have experienced something out of balance for so long that that's become the norm for you, sometimes you just need the assistance of an outsider who have a different look. It's not a matter of weak or strong or intelligent or not intelligent. It's just a matter of having another human being maybe giving you some insight where you may not have had your focus in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I guess there's there's no quick, quick fix. There's no pill to take to, that takes you to joy. Um, but it's, it is very holistic and there is so much that goes into it. And, and a lot of the things that you mentioned as well is the topics that that I talk a lot about and I work with my clients. Um, but I'd love to know as well if anyone does want to go deeper with all of this, um, how can people reach out to you and how can people work with you? There's many ways they can. I have a website called Neurodesign International. Mm -hmm. And if you want to have a look at my books, the soft copies you can get on Neurodesign International or you can also get the soft copy, so the hard copy you can get on my website. The soft copy is on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And if you Google Carsten Bistergaard Peterson, you will find them there as well. And you're also welcome to email me on Carsten P, C-A-R-S-T-E-N-P, at westnet.com.au. And um, reads out in through any of those avenues and I'll be more than happy to talk to you and I would also like to think that if you're suffering things like depression or problem in your marriage that my books can help you. Amazing and we'll put all of that in the show notes as well so people can find all of that information um, and yeah if anyone wants to work with you that will, that will be amazing. Um, Thank you so much for coming Thank on the show. It's you're so it's much so interesting inviting me. <laughs> Always enjoyable talking to you.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, beautiful soul. If this episode resonated with you, please share it on your Instagram stories and tag me at this is Anikoka. If you love this podcast, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review. It would mean the absolute world to me. Thank you for being here, beautiful soul. I am sending you so much love and I can't wait to connect with you in the next episode.